Welcome to the Grad School Femtoring Podcast, the place for first-gen students of color to prepare for grad school. This is Dr. Yvette Martinez Fu, and I will be serving as your femtor, providing you with tips and tricks and everything else you need to know to get into and successfully navigate grad school. For over 10 years, I've been helping first-gen students of color get into top grad programs in their field, and I'm really excited to support you on your academic journey too. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Grad School Femme Touring Podcast. Today, I have a special episode all about disability and academia. And our guest today is Liu Miao, who is a third-year PhD student in human development and family sciences. She is passionate about research on positive youth development, cross-cultural studies, immigrant youth, as well as foster and adoption. And when she's not doing academic work, you can find her drawing on an iPad while listening to music on Spotify, drinking coffee, yum, (laughs) and having a good time with friends. Welcome to the podcast, Lou. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, I'm happy to have you. I was so pleased when you said yes, and I made that invitation just because I have been following you on social media, and I greatly appreciate the information and the content that you provide, which is so informative and knowledgeable. Some of it I can relate to, and some of it I'm also learning as well. So I think you have a wealth of knowledge and experience that my listeners, who are primarily first-gen students of color, will definitely benefit from. And so for those folks who don't know you, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, your backstory, and anything you're comfortable sharing about who you are and also how you got to where you are today, which is your grad school, you're studying mm-hmm. um, family sci- or human development and family sciences, and you do content creation as well, which is a whole other job in and of itself. Yes. Um, <laughs> wow. Trying to fit my story in, into well, whatever you come to Sherry. Some folks don't um, go all the way back. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, I'll just do a brief family history. Um, I was actually adopted from China during the one-child policy, so that's interesting. I. I was very fortunate to be in a better family instead of living in the orphanage for the rest of my life. Um, So I'm the youngest of seven kids, but five of them uh, were a lot older, so I didn't really live with them. So um, my dad went to college, but since his college experience was through the Navy, it was very different. Mm. So like his advice really couldn't help me because he wasn't like, quote unquote, the traditional young 18 year old student, he was a person in Navy. So he was able to get in and like he had different like requirements and resources. So um, his advice for college didn't really help besides his only advice that did help was, um, you know, do the best you can and study. But he never had to do all the forms that a lot of college students have to do because like since it was through the Navy, it was a lot different. So they didn't have the same forms. Um, I did my undergrad at a very small university in Dallas. Uh, primarily my classmates were of Hispanic descent, which uh, that's how I started loving the different Spanish speaking cultures and the learning about the variety of the cultures in the Hispanic speaking population. Um, my minor is actually in Spanish. My major is in psychology. (laughs) So, um, I actually worked primarily with the Spanish speaking community. I'm in the Spanish Honor Society. And that's how I, that's how I got really interested in cross-cultural studies is because I had so many friends from the different areas of North America and South America just teach me about the culture. And I was like, hey. They kind of adopted me. I was called Tanita a lot with my students because I actually uh, tutored students who were um, permanent residents to become citizens. They were able to do that process. And it was so interesting hearing their stories and how, how long it took them to get to that process, even though they worked very hard. It was some of these people were permanent residents for 35 years. Yeah. And then they finally, uh, 
their they finally got the appointment which is like wow they've been working so hard and I just had a newfound respect like I didn't realize the struggle because my immigration story is very different so it was it was nice being able to connect with those people of helping them because you could see that they really wanted to just be the best people they can be in America and they wanted citizenship and they were very working hard and I still keep up with some of those students and they got a vote in the last election it was so sweet um so yeah I did a lot of volunteering in undergrad uh how I got into grad school was um, actually, very interesting. I was not supposed to go to grad school. I was supposed to go to medical school, but then I had a change of heart in my third year in undergrad. So I ended up doing grad school, got into a post PhD program, which basically means you do your, P- uh, your master's and your PhD all in the same uh, university program instead of doing it separately. So I'm currently finishing up the master's portion. Um, COVID definitely played a role in my graduate studies because it happened right in the middle of my first year. So grad school was a little bit of a culture shock. And then you also had COVID. So it was like quite interesting navigating it. I finally feel more like oh, I somewhat understand what I'm doing after like the years. <laughs> so somewhat, I just feel somewhat confident, but not really. But um, I've just been doing classes, research. Um, we've, I've worked on a book chapter and um, I've done some community service with a um, we done mental health and the police. Um, a lot of the lab I was working in it was a lot of community-based research, or we were doing a um, conference posters and presentations. Um, I do want to expand to qualitative, but that won't be until the fall. Um, what got me interested in content creation was actually my first year of undergrad, and I wanted to create a space to like um, help people who may not have like a person to talk to about like college life in general even even though my parents my dad went to college like it like it was such very experienced it didn't really like connect because you didn't have to do some of the same things the paperwork like trying to figure out paperwork and paying your tuition making sure you write the check right and it's like overwhelming so I wanted to provide some free resources um to help students who may not not have anyone to talk to or even if they do have family they might not be close with their family whatever reason so I just wanted that's how I got into content creating I first did a blog but I primarily moved more into Instagram and TikTok just because sometimes people don't want to read like a whole blog post so (laughs) it's also it's also taught me basically how to how to effectively share information but in a condensed way and I feel like I also try to incorporate like science into it and like cited sources just because not everyone has access to academic journals right and and I fully believe as a researcher and as an academic you really need to um, be able to share that knowledge with the general people in layman's term yes that is so important. And I can resonate with that as well. It's just as soon as I had access to higher education and to this wealth of knowledge, I just felt like I, I couldn't not share it with others. So I, um, I'm i glad that you mentioned that, you, that you mentioned how you got into content creation. So it's been a while. You have some experience there if you said you were interested in from undergrad and to now. So yeah, uh, yeah, like academic Instagram wasn't really a thing in 2015. So, um, yeah, I've been doing it for quite a while. Yeah, that's like um, with me and podcasting, because my first podcast was with this collective of mother scholars called Chicana Motherwork, and we would literally go to East LA to a little studio and record there. And it it just like social media wasn't really a thing. And like these apps to make your life easier, (laughs) they weren't a thing. So I feel like the 
the venues, outlets, like spaces to make yeah. knowledge more accessible have definitely increased, which is good because today we're talking about disability in academia. And one of the big things that makes a huge difference is trying to make work information, what we do more accessible. And one way to do that is to share it in, in spaces and in formats that are, um, that, that kind of are reaching wider audiences. Uh, so I would love for you to kind of share a little bit more about what got you started with, with sharing a little bit more about specifically disability rights and disability in grad school. I know you have different topics that you cover in terms of content creation, but in terms of the, the space of and the discussion of disability, how did you get into that, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, so what I always tell people is in my content creation, you can break it up into three categories, research, life, and drawing. So life is just life, drawing is anything artistic, and research is grad school. So if we go under that umbrella of research is, you know, um, I'm very passionate about uh, disability rights, especially in the field of um, academia, just because I'm in it, obviously mm -hmm. disability rights applies to so many other areas, but yes. personally is, um, I'm actually, I have a personal, I have a disability myself and um, it's a very noticeable physical disability with my hips and um, grad school really, I started getting more into, uh, disability and academia rights, especially in grad school, because I didn't realize how grad school was like, it's a little like, they kind of don't care in a sense sometimes. And they're like, um, I've just, I've had some personal experience and other friends who are in academia getting their degrees. And just that grad school is not always the most accommodating, even mm -hmm. though they say, even though they say, um, you want diversity and i always tell them diversity is 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 also disability it's mm -hmm. not just the it's not just race and ethnicity which is a very important or gender but um disability is a able a what's the word um ability is mm -hmm. often a little kind of thrown out when you're talking about disability uh diversity and yeah. everything so um, I just realized like how inaccessible like um, grad school was. And then, and then I was talking to people even just on the undergrad level and um, they mentioned their experiences of having inaccessibleness. And then I've, I've, I've talked with, um, uh people who are actually like uh, professors who already have their degree with disabilities and mm -hmm. they mentioned how just getting like the discrimination and how hard it is to find a job it's already hard to find a job with a phd and then you add disability yeah. and like people assume things the stereotypes mm -hmm. so um i was just like wow this is like a topic that needs to be discussed yes. and i think that it's very important to have someone discuss it who actually is experiencing it too. Mm -hmm. So I was like, and also I wanted to discuss it is because uh, you don't see a lot of content creators with disabilities or, I mean, it's okay if they don't want to mention it, that's totally fine. But like, there are some, we, we need someone to mention it. And there are very few, um, disabled academic creators that will talk about it and the injustice in grad school. So I think if we can get more disabled creators to talk about it, yeah. it'd be really good. Well, I'd like to talk about it. And actually, I want to <laughs> expand a little bit more on what you said about how in spaces of higher ed, so we're not just talking about K through 12, we're talking about college and grad yeah. school. You're saying that they're, they're not very accommodating 
And I think that a lot of that has to do with one, like clearly calling out, like it's ableism. There's ableism everywhere, but it's like really steeped in academic culture because academic culture relies so much on hyper productivity uh, to sustain itself. And if there's anything that disrupts the way that they define productivity, then that's a problem. But two, there's not a seamless system for accommodating students. Professors are not trained on how to work with disabled students. So at least at the very least, not to say that K through 12 is great because it has its own issues, but at least in the K through 12 system, if you have received a diagnosis early on, you have access to an IEP, the individual education plan, you may have access to certain therapies and support and resources that are provided by the state. But in college, all of a sudden that goes away, bye-bye IEP, and you have to go through a disability services office, accessibility services, whatever they call it at that university. And you have to go through all that paperwork and get all this um, documentation from medical providers. And sometimes medical providers don't believe you because disabilities look differently. And for so for some of us, like in your case, in your case, you said mine is a, a visible disability. And for others, it could be an invisible disability. So there's there's a whole range of disabilities. And if you are one of those where it's invisible and someone doesn't want to believe you, maybe you're struggling with endometriosis and you're dealing with chronic pain or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, and you are a, per, a, a woman or and then add that a woman of color and then add that the statistics of how many um, individuals with uteruses are not believed when they talk yeah. about chronic pain. And then they refuse to give you that signature for that paperwork that you need for that accommodation. It's just, it's so multi-layered that I feel like it's it's everywhere. I, I struggled with it myself with getting accommodations for myself. I didn't even dare to because I I just my my I was not in a supportive grad school environment. But even as an employee, I struggled to get accommodations. People not believing you, people thinking you're trying to take advantage of the system for something that you need to be able to get an education. That's the, so I'm sorry, I went on a rant there because. No, no, I totally agree. I'm like, great, sister, I so agree. And what's interesting to know is what one good thing that COVID brought out is Zoom education because like, because like for a lot of people, like there are some days I literally cannot get out of bed or I'm crying and um like you can't go to the doctors for that because like like I know like I didn't break anything but like it's Mm -hmm. your body just messing up but like you can't go to the doc because if I went to the doctors every time I felt that I would be going every day (laughs) when you cannot afford that some people I've had people tell me like supervisors oh if you don't feel well you should just feel free to call in sick and I'm like bitch I'm not calling sick every day (laughs) Yes. So, um, I'm just because like, I don't understand how chronic illness, uncertain like, disabilities work. Education has helped because it it made people realize. Oh, oh, obviously, some classes you can't do by Zoom, but a yeah. majority of classes you you can do in Zoom, and you can still fully participate. So like they just I'm like why did it take so long for a professor to be like, hey this is another avenue for disabled students to uh, to attend and participate, mm-hmm. and like I'm like or like with like um draw uh, delivery drop off with like when you're doing pickup and mm-hmm. you just stay in your car like when you're picking up your textbooks instead of having to go in because it could be a hassle and right. like some of just the COVID regulations. We could have been doing that all along. Like delivery pickup would have helped disabled students, so they Definitely. don't have to go in the building. Um, especially the Zoom education, especially because like sometimes, I don't know, your wheelchair might break. You might not have insulin that day. Mm-hmm. You can't go. So like, I feel like we should have been utilizing yeah. some of these tools so much more because it could have greatly helped. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you didn't have to go in person. And, and some of us try. 
Yeah, just to like expand, like just some of us yeah. benefit from even this, like having access to a recording, being able to listen to yeah. something a second or third time. Uh, I know I don't always retain information the first time I hear it. And mm -hmm. I recall having professors when I was an undergrad who refused, and there are still professors like this, refuse to give you any access to technology in their classroom. You can only show up with a pen and paper and I would always have like my hands cramping up and I could never take proper notes. And most of the time I felt like it was a waste. I, I wouldn't fully grasp the information no. because I didn't have access to technology that would allow me to record or that would allow me to type because I type faster than I write. Just things that we all have different tools that help us with our own learning. Even if you're not you know, disabled per se, we all learn in different ways. It just, it does, that has never really made sense to me why there's so and many restrictions, yeah. Another interesting point about disability in academia, um, when you're in K through 12 in the US, there is usually a plan for getting students out in emergency. Like they have, they come for all students and they figure it out. But once you hit that college and up, like I've been told by two different universities, um, either call this number, talk to your head supervisor, or just wait for someone to come get you. And like, even though I physically can walk, like if I'm on the fifth floor and there's like a fire on top of me, walking, like running down five flights of stairs is not gonna be good. Even though I physically could, I could probably just break something in the process. So I'm like, yeah. why isn't there like any regulations on how to like, help disabled students and not have the wait while there could be an emergency there are literally like, campuses and buildings that are not ada compliant and it's so messed up i mean i i am not someone who needs a mobility aid but i have been a pregnant individual i have uh, had uh, strollers on campuses and when you are using something that requires using wheels you start to notice wait i cannot get from point a to point b wow is this not compliant yeah or i've noticed i i use the elevators because just walking upstairs is it's just gonna make me feel worse and i've noticed why are the accessible doors and the elevators not close together i'm like you're putting the yes. accessible doors in some said random doorway instead of putting the accessible doors at the main entrance which would make sense because if you're getting dropped off it's easier to get dropped off at a main entrance of the building versus like some random doorway on the side of the building. I'm like, make it work. You have and to then, be so, you learn to be so creative and figure out your own routes when you, when you can't just take the stairs yeah. or take that, you know, that hike up whichever way yeah. is, yeah. So you got to make a hike from the accessible door to the elevator and then to your classroom or wherever you're going. So it's like a multi-facet um, issue. And then uh, one another interesting point is I was told through my current university, I couldn't get accommodation for homework. I could only get them for in the physical classroom. And I'm like, what? But I'm like, um, but my disability doesn't leave when I leave the classroom. Yes. So like me not being able to attend the class might be the same reason I can't finish this one homework and I have to submit it like four hours later because I started feeling better. And it's like, mm -hmm. I'm like, ah, oh, that really makes sense. I mean, fortunately, my professors like have been very accommodating and stuff, but like it's it's based on whether or not they want to because like legally they don't have to because that's not accommodation that the school offers again it's they not said, centralized it's like I'm on like, a case-by-case -case basis i'm just like why can't the school offer accommodations outside the classroom it does not make sense i mean maybe it's just my school but i'm like no it's not not make sense. i'm like that just does not make sense you have accommodations in the whole in the classroom but you need some outside it's just like because even if you have the syllabus and dates, it's like, you never know. You could have a flare up for three days and miss the yes. deadline. Yes, yes. You know, it's interesting. I am um, part of 
social media platforms and also Facebook groups. And um, so some of them are related to being an academic spoonie or being a disabled yeah. student. And one thing I've noticed across the board is that a lot of individuals are discouraged from, from seeking accommodations because of one very bad incident they may have had with one professor. So all of a sudden they have one bad incident and that becomes a precedent for all future incidents. They assume that it's going to be like that every single time. And then they um, have a much lower chance of requesting accommodations and then in turn don't do as well in school. And that's how students get pushed out to be frank. Um, so that's what you're reminding me of is just how there's a lack of um, consistency, there's a lack of centralizing this, and then um, those professors that are not supportive kind of ruin it for everybody else. It's just really, really unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. And then you you also have that fear, even though if it even if it's accommodation approved by the school, you always have that fear of people, the professors judging you, even mm -hmm. though they say they don't. I truly feel like some yeah. actually do because oh yeah whole, even when whole, they like, say it you can hear it in their tone like that whole mentality of like you you just have to keep going like work until you burn out and I'm like I'm like I can't be sleeping at the school like you okay I'm like I physically can't be that dedicated and it's not that healthy I'm like I need a break and like mm -hmm. they always just push it continuously work and I'm like some people can do that, bless them, but I cannot, mm -hmm. and a lot of disabled people cannot, and yeah. then you just have, you just feel like, also just feel like different, and like, even though they don't say you have accommodations in the class, some accommodations are more noticeable, yeah. so it, that, that also discourages some people. And I have myself been discouraged to sometimes utilize accommodations because it like makes it obvious I have accommodations mm -hmm. from the ones that I need. And it's like, oh, I don't want to look different, but I need And then it. having so to explain also... yourself when it is noticeable. I know, I, I remember being in grad school and having to ask for accommodations when I um, had my baby, you know, going into, um, going into it needing to go into find a lactation room and yeah. you know uh, express milk etc and it's kind of awkward to be like okay I'm leaving and I'm coming back with my milk no, <laughs> my body needs to do something you know because yeah. I need another life but it's it's you know accommodations look like so many different things yeah. in so many different ways and sometimes you don't want to keep having to explain and justify yourself you shouldn't have to yeah yeah, and then I also relate in the sense of like invisible disabilities because mm -hmm. I'm kind of both. I tell people I'm kind of both. Obviously, it's very obvious I physically walk different, but people just think, oh, she just like limps and just waddles. But they don't realize that the complexity of my disability it is actually like ruining my joints. So it's causing mm -hmm. severe joint issues. So they don't realize oh, she doesn't just walk different and waddle. She, I actually have chronic pain yeah. and I have to be on so much medication. And like, and in regards to that, um, some, like some grad programs, they have a lot of outside activities and they kind of expect you to go to everything. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, you know, school and classes are already tiring enough. And like, not every disabled student has the energy to physically go and then go socialize with the same people you have to work with or take classes with so it's like can we talk about that a little bit more can we talk about the spoon theory maybe for a little bit because I have had yeah. conversations about disability in grad school uh, I've, I've had at least one episode just dedicated to that with another guest and we didn't get to talk about that but I think that's what you are reminding me of because I can relate to that too if someone is maybe they're not requiring you to do something completely physically strenuous, but the act of like having to stay on campus longer or having to um, expend a lot of energy, even if it's not just physical energy, but even I feel like, like even mental. This, yeah, that adds to it. And that could actually contribute to flare ups. So can we talk about that, about uh, the spoon theory and what it means to have less um I don't know. To have, yeah, to have less spoons than other people. 
Um, wow, so much. I really do love the spoon theory just because people people can understand a lot of things if they can physically see yeah. something. So if you're using spoons, most people know what a spoon is. I mean, generally speaking. And I just love that example. It's like people with disabled people, they only have so many spoons to get through the day. And we have to prioritize, hey, we need these spoons to get through the main task mm -hmm. of passing your, going to class, doing your homework that's due tomorrow and eating. And like, we don't really have a lot of time to socialize outside of the basic necessities for that day. Yeah. And it's very hard that a lot of programs have all these extra things while they're very helpful. Sometimes it's very tiring, whether it's even if it's on Zoom or it is in person, if it's not like class related or specifically my job, mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm so tired. Mm -hmm. And like, yes, I might take a nap in the afternoon, but I am still tired. Oh my so, gosh, the fatigue is so real. As someone who struggles yeah. with chronic fatigue and as someone who I will raise my hand and say that too much Zoom is a thing. If I am on Zoom for too long, I will get a migraine yeah. that could last eight to 10 hours. And people don't understand that. <laughs> they don't understand the concept of like, you know, it's not just what's physically demanding. Like sometimes we have different triggers. And for me, screen time is a trigger. Too much of it can trigger my, my migraines or other things, yeah. And um, I just think most programs are not used to um, handling disabled students. Um, I've just noticed even with mine, like I'm like one of two students like currently they've had one other student but like it's very few so like and then you also have the burden to always have to constantly ask about stuff mm -hmm. because your situation is different and they're like oh we haven't done it before because most people follow this trajectory but if you go off this other trajectory sometimes like sometimes programs kind of make it like you shouldn't be going off this trajectory but I guess we'll help you kind of thing I'm just like uh, we should accept that grad school is not linear and everyone mm -hmm. has struggles. We just tend, we just have an additional struggle than people's regular struggles. So I'm just like, yeah. And it's funny because that through. there might be policies around things, but a lot of times because they're not utilized, then folks don't encourage it. So for instance, you know, many grad students have access to some of them, depending on their form of employment, to sick and vacation time. But then whoever talks about sick and vacation time for grad students, I, no one that I know, or taking a oh, little absence. Oh, I know that. Yeah, I'm depending on your source of employment, you may qualify for sick and vacation time. I've had folks that I've managed and supervised that I had it, and I'm like, take it, take all of it, <laughs> use it all up. <laughs> um, You're right, note to self, check on that. Um, I did, in regards to like leave of absence when people talk about that it's a very interesting topic on their tone of how they talk about it because like some people are really helpful but then some people kind of look down that you're taking mm -hmm. this leave and then you have to go through so much paperwork yes. and then even though you're taking a leave of absence then not really I personally think it feels like you just got dumped mm -hmm. by your grad program and like if like I was very fortunate enough that I had enough savings to survive the time but not everyone has savings so like when you're not when you're on a leave of absence you don't have your assistantship so yeah. like you still have to live and it's like not everyone like I was able to have savings and my family did help some so like I was very fortunate in that but not everyone has family not everyone has a bit a big enough savings to survive yeah so some medical leaves can be a year eight months mine was about seven so like I was very fortunate with the support of family and savings but not everyone has that so like I I was looking into like the policies and there's not really much that helps students besides just giving them time off and I'm like I feel like there should be something financially could help people because not everyone's gonna 
it's like yeah you have the time off from school but it's like you can't really take care of yourself if yeah. you can't pay for your your doctor's visits or your medications or if like, they cut you off from healthcare too yeah yes because like I was fortunate enough that my healthcare wasn't through the school but like if your healthcare is through the school that gets cut off because you're you're not a student and then if you have any other student benefits or something through subscriptions or something you're not you're not really a student anymore and I lost some student subscriptions because of that yeah. I mean it's like yeah it, it's kind of like sad because I feel like they could offer more support besides just giving you the time off it's like they kind of just like dump you and leave you there to figure out something for eight months and come back <laughs> like okay it's um it's so unfortunate and can be so discouraging and I know um through my platform I've had a lot of people reach out to me to let me know that they're suffering in silence that they're dealing with something or with um with COVID too there's this huge rise in there's a there's a transition of a huge population who's suddenly for the first time dealing with chronic illness symptoms. So there's a yeah. bunch of people struggling with long COVID. They don't know when it's going away, if it's ever going away. And they're having to deal with this identity shift all of, all of a sudden from being a you know, able-bodied to all of a sudden being becoming disabled. And I think this is true. That this is the thing about, about disability is that most of us don't want to come to terms with the fact that if we are lucky enough, if we're one of the lucky ones to live until old age, at some point we're going to have to face some sort of disability because as you age, there's a higher chance of you struggling with some yes. sort of medical issue. And I feel like this is not something that you, if you're able-bodied right now that you can just ignore because at any point something could happen. Some, yeah. some folks are born with disabilities and some folks acquire them. I know for me, I, I developed a chronic illness in grad school. So before that, I definitely took my health for granted. I wish I hadn't, but I, I was a morning person. I could go and go places and I had a lot of energy. Uh, I slept very well. I sleep terrible now. I just I was... relate. <laughs> and um it, it really is unfortunate. I think we do need to have these conversations and it shouldn't just be among us, ourselves, folks who are part of the community. It needs to be expanded outside of that because yeah. so many people, like I said, are struggling. They're suffering in silence. They don't, they haven't come to terms with this shift in, in this transition in their life and in their bodies and in their mental health too, because disability effects can affect your mental health. I struggle with depression and anxiety. And I'll tell yeah. you the days that my flare-ups are the worst are also when my mental health is at its worst. So there's the same. That it's like, yeah. well, it's like both, both ends just wanted to crash at the same time. I feel that. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. Like if you just think about it, like just, just general statistics of just grad school, not the general population, like, like of mental health issues, mm -hmm and other very, very dark struggling issues um, occur. It's a very high percentage of grad students struggling with it. And you would think if schools know that there's a very high percentage that a lot of students gonna just struggle with it, you would think they give us better healthcare. But, and then you add on having a disability or chronic illness of some sort, and that number does go up because you already yeah. have issues and grad school makes those issues already worse. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, so basically the whole population of grad students either will be getting worse or will receive a diagnosis of some sort. So it's like everyone's basically having some issue. Mm -hmm. And like, if you talk to some people, like in, I've talked to a variety of students, Healthcare, it's not the very best in grad school and or it's really expensive or it does not cover that much. And I'm like, if you just look at the numbers, there's so many people where there's such a high percentage of us having some sort of mental issue, wanting yeah. not to live. And like, you know, a grad school should not make someone not want to live. That's very bad. And I really feel like grad school should really provide these resources given that these numbers are very high just for the general population and then it gets 
and then you know like from research like those with disabilities and chronic illness especially if it involves severe chronic pain of some sort we're more like we're more there's a higher percentage for us to have these mental issues and yeah. just go down and it's like everyone's having mental issues or some physical something I'm like grad, grad schools we need to have some health health care or something I mean yes they provide resources but sometimes like I even try to get in for like um, depression and anxiety and the um the wait was like five months and I ended up having to um it took a whole semester I contacted someone in the fall 2021 I didn't get noticed until January 2022 the end of January that I could get counseling wow but I ended up that counseling didn't work so I had to go outside it took it took like five months just to get to see a psychiatrist and it's like "Mm." We either need we need more resources. Yeah, we do, and it's it's disheartening because it is a microcosm of the larger issue, which is not just that academia is problematic, but that it's reflective of larger systemic issues in the United States too. And I'll be honest with you. So I moved last year, my family from the US to Portugal. And one big reason why I went through this whole process of immigrating to a new country is because of access to universal healthcare here in another country. So in a lot of countries, healthcare is not tied to your source of employment. So even if you are unemployed, you have access to universal health care. Something happens to you, you will not go into, into debt that is going to cost you years or perhaps your life to get out of. No, the, the, the country provides that for you. Whereas in the United States, because it's linked to your source of employment, you're not a student, no longer have healthcare. You know, you, you're not employed, you no longer have healthcare. And, and if you're relying on like um, public sources of, of healthcare, there's still a much higher chance that you go to the ER, you get this thousands dollar you know this this bill worth thousands is what I'm saying it's yes and now I understand why as a child of immigrants my parents were so afraid of taking us anywhere to the doctor to urgent care to the ER we never they told us we would never go to the doctor unless we were dying and it was true and um and they sheltered us so much because they didn't want us to get hurt because they didn't want us to go to the doctor so it's just this like systemic issue as a whole and I know now I'm like oh this conversation is is getting really dark but I also want to kind of flip the script too and not Mm -hmm. just focus on the negative because I think there's actually there's actually a lot that you gain from having a disability from having a chronic illness uh, from having to learn how to advocate for yourself I'll tell you the folks I know who are disabled, who are grad students. I'm like, they plan in advance. They are so good at dealing with bureaucracy as annoying as it is. Like, I'm like, I would hire them because I I know that they've had to figure so much shit out that I can trust that they would figure anything out. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I actually have some talking points about those. Yes. Why it's important to include disabled academics. Oh, I love that. One of the major things I talk about is resiliency and grad school, it's tough. It it will chew you out and throw you out if you if you give up, but like both just both uh, grad school and disability, if you let it win, it will chew you out and throw you Mm -hmm. out. But like you got to like really work hard, even when you just just want to cry and give up both require resiliency and I feel like um that's that's not always a skill you can teach it's just something you have like you just acquire it because you had to like you had no choice but to be resilient Mm -hmm. it's very hard but like I feel like that's just a key factor that anyone in grad school needs but Disabled people just happen to have it because we had to yes. before getting into grad school. 
And then um, time management. Everyone talks about how time management is important in grad school, but they um, you kind of forget you need time management and having disability. You got doctor's appointments. You got uh, um, taking medication or any other type of things. Talking to insurance companies about why you're not getting what you need, and it's like you don't think about like these skills that disabled people already have. It it just it helps makes us good grad students because yes. we already we already have those skills and we can transfer it to a different field because we're we're learning. We always have to constantly learn how to figure out things. And like my last point is problem solving. Uh, grad oh school. my gosh <laughs> grad school either you're you're teaching which you have to problem solve how to figure out students or you're in research and you got problem solve on how to fix the problem and execute your research project well and the same disability is the same thing you got a problem solve with um, medical doctors psychiatrists professors insurance and Everything. you're constantly having to adjust and like um so it's just like we need to include disabled academics because they already have had to have these skills for so long it's kind of second nature for us because it's like hey we already do this in one area we can just basically do it in a different area I'm glad that you mentioned that. I think that is so critical to see disability, not just as this deficit lens, which I know can yeah. be the norm. Um, and that's why a lot of people are afraid to even use that word. It's like, oh, it's as if it's a bad word, but instead to see it as an asset, you know, just like you want diversity of of race, ethnicity, class, gender. You also, tying it back to what you mentioned earlier, you want disability, I mean, you want disability to be one of those aspects of diversity mm -hmm. um, because we bring so much to the table. Um, I would love for you to share, uh, and I, we're gonna get close to wrapping up, but any advice mm -hmm. for students, they may be undergraduates or recent college graduates who wanna apply to grad school, and who may be struggling with, with this whole conversation about being a disabled student. And I get this question a, a lot. Should I mention it? Should I not mention it? How much do I share my personal statement? Should I disclose? And, mm -hmm. um, and that I always say it's a very personal decision. Although I, I have that thing that I lean more towards the side of sharing because you wanna make sure that you get support, access to resources, accommodations, all of that. And you don't want someone to, you don't want to go somewhere where, like, where they're not going to be supportive. Where they, so anyway, but I, I, any advice for students who are thinking about going to grad school and are concerned about how being disabled may kind of affect them in their grad school journey? I would say one of the biggest things uh, for me is uh, know your rights, because like, I, I okay, like my first semester, I was kind of nervous for asking accommodations, even though I had the right to, I'm like, mm. so know your rights and utilize them, because like, there are rights for a reason, and like, even though it's very scary to like, be like, hey, professor, I need these accommodations, legally, they have to give it to you, even yes. though they may not like it, but it's, it's so hard, but like, just know, just read what your rights are as a disabled student and like know what they are and then utilize it because if a professor tries to do something and kick you out be like hey I have the right to be here I met the requirements and you you have the right for uh reasonable accommodations and things so just know them and you have to be bold and be like, yeah. hey, I need these rights. It's so hard, but like, that's the one thing I've had struggle with and that I've had to learn to be like, hey, I need this help. So it makes it even for me and the other people, it's an even playing field. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, most professors are willing to give the accommodation so it's more even. But even if you meet a professor who's like, hey, I still, I don't like this accommodation, but I guess I'll give it to you. Just be like, hey, you know, 
I deserve to be here like everyone else. I just need a little accommodation just to make it more fair for me. It's not, I think people view accommodation as an advantage of like, oh, they're going to get an A easier because they have accommodation. But it's important to remind people accommodation isn't so we get an A faster or something. It's so the level playing field, so everyone's on the same playing field. And it's more accurate to grade people because it just makes it a little more even. Yes. Even then, it might not even be a level playing field, but at least it gets you a little bit closer. It's, right? a, it's uh, a little closer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's so hard to speak up, but you, you got to do it because grad school will just stomp all over you. Mm-hmm. And it does get a little bit easier. It's still uncomfortable, but it does get easier over time. Yeah. Or at least that's been my experience. It's like it gets a little less scary. It's still I, not my favorite thing to do, but but it, it it you just kind of learn to you know figure out ways to best advocate yeah. for yourself and I, for others I, I too. Yeah. I feel like as disabled students or just disabled people in general, one characteristic we have to we learn fairly quickly. You just got to stop caring what other people think. Oh you, my gosh, yes. You got to do the, <laughs> obviously you got to be a good person to others, but you got to just do the best you can do to succeed in life. Be a kind person, just do your own thing and do your best. But you, most people don't care what you're doing. If they care, you shouldn't care because it's not their life, it's yours. Yes, yes. Well, I want to thank you, uh, Lou, for coming today. I also wanted to ask the last question, which is for folks who want to connect with you, who really enjoyed what you had to say and want to hear more, want to follow you, how can they reach you? Um, so they can, the best way to reach me is through Instagram at a, a word with L-I-U-M-I-A-O. Um, so it, it's a word with Lou Mio. But um, Instagram is the best way. I'm pretty active on there. My DMs are always open. Can chat yes. through the Insta stories. I love it. Yeah, that's how we connected. I love everything that you put out. So um, I'm going to make sure to add it to the show notes. And I want to thank you once again. I I feel like I could just keep going on and on and on. Yes, you're so <laughs> easy to talk to. I'm like, I I really want to have coffee with you. I'm like, uh, me too, because so I legit want coffee. <laughs> I, it's too I'm late for like, me right now, but I love coffee. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do too. I had to start drinking decaf because of a doctor, but that's so sad. But mm-hmm. I love coffee and some really good authentic Mexican tacos. Yeah. Even though they don't go together, I'm just like, oof, some tacos. You know what? Like I'm in a mixed family, so everything we eat and drink does not go together, but we we make it work because we like it. <laughs> uh, yes. Ew. Thank you so much. I yes. love your content. I love learning what you have to say and just things so thank you so much thank you thank you so much for joining me in the grad school femtoring podcast if you liked what you heard please leave me a review on apple podcasts or email me your review at gradschoolfemtoring at gmail.com You can also show your support by going to gradschoolfemtoring.com and joining my mailing list where you'll receive weekly tips, podcast and blog updates, as well as discounts for my digital downloads, online courses, and much more. One last thing. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Until next time.